Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Happy Wednesday. Welcome back to Girl and They Got the Podcast. How is it Wednesday? How did this happen? Time is an illusion, but we're here. It is. But like, I'm glad we're here. We have such an epic episode. I'm so excited. Such an epic episode and such an epic month of episodes because... Newsflash, we are dedicating the entire month of April to climate change and climate-related episodes and topics. We have literally the most incredible guests slated this month, starting this week, starting today, and we are covering everything climate change. So we want to hear also all your guys' questions regarding climate change. It's a very overwhelming topic, and there's so much to it. So if you guys have questions, whether it's about policy or ways to get involved or make an impact dm us we also posted a tiktok about this you can go comment on the tiktok your questions and we will ask them to our guests this month and make sure everyone you know has a good understanding of this pretty big and daunting topic of climate change so yeah but i think you guys will love it we so far like these guests so far have been so good and today we are kicking it off with aaron burgess he is the climate director for tom steyer's pack he was also the climate policy director on tom steyer's campaign for president and for next gen america so he is going to cover all things climate policy with us today and really break down really what this issue of climate change really is and how it manifests and how we can tackle the climate crisis through policy. So, drum roll, here is Aaron. So, let's see. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. And so, 
my family's always been a very outdoorsy family and cared a lot about climate and the environment for a long time. I went to the University of Colorado as an undergrad, where I was a pretty indecisive undergrad, I'd say. I studied political science. I studied broadcast journalism with a concentration in meteorology. Whoa. I was solidly on the uh, the like the TV weatherman track for a little bit. Okay, but I have so many questions. We could we could go into it, but you know when I was leaving college. I was really looking for kind of an opportunity to have uh, a big impact in the world right, you know, right away. And I actually ended up talking with a Teach for America recruiter that told me all about uh, that program. So I ended up joining Teach for America and moving to rural North Carolina. I taught seventh grade science there for a number of years, which was an incredible experience. I loved my students, but it also kind of gave me a firsthand look into how policy decisions at the state and federal levels were directly and negatively impacting my students on a day-to-day basis. And so I left teaching and I came out here to the Bay Area to go to policy school at the Goldman School of Public Policy School, Berkeley, to try to look a little bit deeper and see how these big structural changes to policy can help benefit more people. And so When I came out to grad school, I did some work on education policy, I think, honestly, was a little bit burnt out (laughs) from Mm -hmm. education and started focusing a bit more on climate and environmental issues. And, uh, you know, those were areas that I cared about my whole life and had an opportunity to kind of explore those issues with some really interesting people. And fast forward almost 10 years later, which is crazy to say out loud, still <laughs> still working in that space. So that's kind of what brought me to, to where I am now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess to show too, like sometimes it's like you're most successful in the things you just feel most naturally passionate about, right? But it makes sense to have sort of that natural flow. It's like you were passionate about, you grew up with it and sort of here you are, but your journey, your political journey is super impressive to literally say the least. You have, you know, roles as communication policy consultant for a former governor. You also are now Tom Steyer's climate director. Like what inspired you to take on those roles first and foremost, specifically? And then also within those to go, you know what, climate policy is going to be the track I really go. You know, you can be passionate about climate, but that doesn't mean, you know, it's necessarily the direction you go in your career, but you did. You know, I think, like I said, I always cared about climate and the environment from a very young age, being exposed and, you know, taking advantage of all the Colorado outdoorsiness that Colorado has to offer. I think, so I had kind of always been, I'd always known about climate change and I understood the urgency of it. And I think in grad school really focused in, and you know, you can't think about climate for too long without it getting back to energy and energy policy. And, you know, it, I was very lucky in my first year of grad school to start working with someone like Governor Granholm, and I, or I should say Secretary Granholm now, she's our new energy secretary, which is Amazing. super exciting. But someone like her, she's so passionate about the issue, and she was really able to kind of help me dial in, not just on the urgency of the issue, but how clean energy is a climate solution and also so a huge economic opportunity for a lot of people. So it was kind of the nexus of still doing something that will help a lot of people and connecting it back to kind of environment and climate and really having inspirational, highly passionate and motivated people like Secretary Granholm to, to work with. And 
honestly, I think a lot of it is, is thanks to her because she's, she's the kind of person that makes you want to learn more and think harder. And, and it was really kind of a turning point, I'd say, in my career starting to work for her. Yeah. Well, the term Nexus like, just reminds me of, like, did anyone have Nexus Lexus? In middle school, I remember that because <laughs> that is like literally immediately what like came to mind. I was like, is that oh the my um, gosh, research throwback. thing? Yeah, mm-hmm. you find I mean, I like, used to, uh, like put that on my resume to like look better, but I didn't actually know what it was. <laughs> you knew how to use LexisNexis, yeah. Yes, <laughs> but just be honest. Okay, so no, can you also tell us about your journey, honestly, at this point with Tom Steyer, and obviously he's a big climate warrior and ran for president. You worked as a policy director there for climate and now work for his pack. So can you kind of explain to especially what you guys are working on now and a little bit about that role of being a policy director? You know, I feel like when people think about working in policy or working for an elected official or you're working as a staffer somewhere and actually draw, like writing up and creating policy that's going to be like on the house floor the next day. Can you kind of explain also the way it functions within a pack and how your role compares or differs from that too. Sure. Well, there's a there's a lot of overlap there, I think. So, you know, for Tom, I've been working for Tom for about 7 years now, which again is crazy how time flies. It's it's a it's a journey and one of the things that's been uh, really nice about this opportunity is, you know, starting off working at an organization called Next Gen America, which is kind of every election cycle that we've gone through as an organization, we kind of retool what worked, what didn't work, and try to make sure that we're more effective the next time around. And so we found, you know, did a lot of policy work at the state and federal level through NextGen. But when Trump was elected into office, a lot of that changed. We were no longer able to kind of play offense at the federal level, meaning try to enact policies that we really want. And then it became defense, trying to defend the policies that we have or stop the the Trump administration from from abandoning a lot of the progress that we've made on the issues that we care about. And it also took, you know, we were solely focused on climate prior to Trump. And then we realized so many other issues that progressives hold dear were under attack by that administration that we kind of broadened our policy portfolio a little bit there. And so folks know that Tom ran for president and Maddie, full disclosure, you were uh, in the trenches with us on that campaign. And I, and I should say that, you know, speaking on these policy issues and everything, I'm speaking for myself and not for Tom, of yeah. course. But part of what I did for, for climate director on that campaign is really trying to put together kind of a blueprint or a vision for how we would want the federal government to respond to the climate crisis. And what we did on Tom's campaign and one of the goals of this full, you know, of the campaign itself was to elevate climate as an issue and show how it's connected to all the other issues that people care a lot about. And, you know, there were very few questions on the debate stage that pertain directly to climate, yep. but there were a lot that talked about healthcare. There were a lot that talked about immigration and a lot that talk about the economy. And so we were very deliberate to make the connections between all of those other issues because climate is one of these cross-cutting ones and educating uh, voters about how addressing climate change is also addressing all of these other issues that they care a lot about was a kind of important goal of ours. And so as Tom's campaign ended, that work to elevate climate and addressing climate continued even after the campaign. So we worked uh, pretty closely uh, with the Biden campaign to help mobilize the climate community around Biden's strengthened climate plans. And now that Biden 
has won. We're kind of working to help ensure that Congress and the administration actually enact a lot of the bold policy that that he campaigned on. And so there's a role kind of for the formal policymakers and the lawyers to actually write policy down, Maddie, as you say, that appears on on the House floor in bills. But there's also a lot of roles for non-governmental organizations like Tom Sires Pack, like a lot of the other big environmental organizations to talk to elected officials, to explain priorities and and policy issues that they uh, would like to see enacted as a way to kind of help elevate and help demonstrate that these are things that the public really wants as well. And I think when we can demonstrate that these are good policies, not just for the climate, but for people, for jobs, for the economy, and that the vast majority of Americans, Democrat or Republican, are supportive of them, your likelihood of actually getting something enacted is better. And so that's kind of the role that we're we're playing right now. That's amazing. That was a very good answer. I gave you a very loaded question and you just loaded it right back. Thank you. <laughs> well, happy to go deeper on, on any of those pieces as well. Yes. Oh, and we will. We will, of course. Okay. Well, we want to just like dive into our I have a stupid question segment because we want to get to know this issue of climate change on a, like a very simple level to start with as we said we'll definitely dive deeper but just give us like the what is climate change like in layman's terms and also kind of highlight some of the main concerns that come with climate change and whether that's kind of the more mainstream ideas of it of like rising sea levels or extreme weather like what are some of the major issues that we will face and are facing when it comes to climate change sure so i'll answer the first question I was very happy that when I was a seventh grade science teacher, climate and weather were in our curriculum in North Carolina. So I'll explain climate change like I explained it to my seventh graders. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone listening is like, damn, okay. (laughs) But but very basically, right, we we know, and we're talking here about the, the fancy way to say it's anthropogenic climate change, which is just a fancy way to say caused by humans, right? There, there's some natural variations in our climate that occur over long periods of time. We're, we're talking about what humans have done. And basically since the turn or the start of the 19th century with the industrial boom, humans started emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, right? And those greenhouse gases, mainly people talk about carbon dioxide and methane, right? Those are the kind of two main ones. Are released into the atmosphere when we burn gas in our cars, coal and power plants, other types of fossil fuels. And what those do is they get stuck in the atmosphere and they trap heat. And the kind of what I equate that to with my seventh graders is you park your car in the sun on a hot day and you leave all the windows closed. When you get back to it, is the inside going to be extra cold or extra hot? Like it's trapping the heat in there. The solar radiation is continuing to warm it up, warm it up. And that's basically what's happening at a global scale is these gases help. I love that analogy. I know. So it's very, it's tangible, right? You know, seventh grader understands it. They come out of their store, you know, the grocery store with their parents, they get into the car and they're like, holy cow, the car's hot. Mm -hmm. So these gases have been building up and building up over time. And, you know, a lot of people who deny that this is happening, first of all, I should say that, you know, this is far confirmed by by scientists all around the world. Talk about those natural cycles, but we're so far in terms of the concentration of these gases in the atmosphere, so far beyond any of that, that it's clearly warming the planet up. And so the main concerns with warming the planet up, you know, we're talking about a couple degrees Celsius, a handful of degrees Fahrenheit, which doesn't seem 
like a lot when you just think about it, like one or two degrees, you know, change here or there. This is another analogy that I use with the seventh graders, like your body, we did human body systems as well, right? Maintains a 98.6 degree temperature. Even when you go up to a hundred to one-on-one, you're sick, you have a fever, right? So even a small temperature change within your own body can cause a lot of problems. And the same is true. Another great analogy. Honestly, this same. should be like your new title, just analogy. <laughs> now, well, we'll see. Seventh Wait, grade I, level. Like, a climate ones, scientist now? I think I might be a climate scientist at this point. I don't know. <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> so the main concerns with raising the temperature a little bit and trapping that heat in, you mentioned a couple of them, like rising sea level is one. The, the temperature of the ocean is rising as well because the, the ocean is actually one of the uh, biggest sources uh, or carbon sinks where it actually sucks carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere but in doing so it becomes more acidic and that's not good for life that lives um, in the ocean not just animals but coral reefs are really threatened not just by the acidification but also the temperatures there's very specific temperatures where they can uh, thrive rising sea level is another that you mentioned this comes not only from melting sea ice or not, well, melting land-based ice. We can dive into the difference between sea ice and land-based ice if you'd like, but also thermal expansion is as things warm up, they expand, right? So sea level rise is a big issue, especially for communities and countries that have very large populations, low elevations. And just one, one side story there, I think Tom and I have participated in a lot of these UN climate conferences over the years. And at one, we were in Poland at the climate conference, coal country Poland, a couple of years ago. And we were meeting with the environment minister from the Marshall Islands who was there. And we were talking to him and we, Tom asked, what is the highest elevation of your country? And he looked at the gentleman next to him and they kind of agreed that it was this bridge between two sides of this island. The bridge was the highest elevation point, which is about 30 feet. And we're talking, you know, an entire country that's going to be extremely vulnerable to even small amounts of sea level rise, because it's not just we're not talking about 30 feet of sea level rise. But if a storm comes through and presses seawater inland, into all of their freshwater sources, they've lost their their source of freshwater for that entire country, which is, so that's a tangent. Sea level rise is very real for for island nations, but then also a lot of countries, you know, coast, coastal communities here in the United States, but also particularly in developing countries, Bangladesh, India have, you know, hundreds of millions of people around the world that are living in, you know, a couple feet of sea level rise that are, are threatened by that. Kind of another big impact that we talk about. Sorry, that was a, a tangent talking I about the Marshall it, Islands there. But <laughs> what else? So extreme weather is another one. We kind of talk about that as storms and extreme weather events will become more frequent, more prolonged, and more severe. So we're talking floods, droughts, uh, heat waves, Polar vortexes, like we saw already this year, hurricanes, all of those, we can expect the storms to happen more often, causing more dollars worth of damage when we think about this economically. Prolonged, meaning droughts, you know, we're calling in from California now, right? And we've had years and years 
of drought conditions, heat waves, and, and then intense, you know, and I should add fires to that list too, because that, you know, is a combination of droughts, uh, heat waves, and, and extreme weather events. So that all kind of has a, a huge impact, as does the impact on, on biodiversity and, and plant and animal habitats, which we kind of touched on before. So those are kind of the big top line issues to worry about. Yeah. So it's like, there's a lot of a lot of impacts. Of course, impacts also cross over into economics. What are some of those? Like what, when we think of climate change and economics, how do those intersect? Well, it's impossible to separate them. I think a lot of, I'll get political here, which I think is okay, right? Yeah. But yes, a lot of absolutely. Permission granted. <laughs> Uh, a lot of Republicans, at least over time, have used the kind of excuse that taking action uh, to address climate change would cost too much money. It's, you know, building, transitioning from fossil fuel energy to, to clean energy is too expensive, and I don't want to damage the economy by, by doing that, which is BS to say, and I can dive into how we've kind of proven that is the case. But one of the things is with these more frequent and, you know, extreme weather events, the number of, they kind of calculate a weather event by the, you know, how many caused a billion dollars in damage or higher. And the number of these billion dollar or more expensive storms is climbing year by year. And so the economic impact of those you know, rebuilding after those storms and the the damage from those storms is significant and calculable. But if you kind of think about all of those other issues that I was talking about, where hundreds of millions of people be displaced from their homes, the the damage to plant and animal habitats, there's just a lot of impacts of climate change that are hard to calculate uh, a strict dollar figure of what it is. And I think it's safe to assume that taking action on climate change is something we just can't afford not to do at the same time. And I think we'll, we'll talk more about kind of the economics and how different you know, policies are trying to address that. But the one thing that I worked on a lot with Secretary Granholm is that all of the solutions that we're proposing to address the climate change are actually a huge economic opportunity and job creator for our economy. Putting, you know, rebuilding our roads and bridges and, you know, transforming our electricity grid off of fossil fuels into clean, uh, renewable energy is an enormous job creator. And this is something that's going to happen. And the technology is here. And there's kind of a question now where is America going to be the leader in this technology and, and manufacture a lot of this clean tech here where we can reap the benefits of all the job creation and, and the, the gains to our economy? Or are we going to let other countries, China, European Union and other countries around the world kind of take that leadership? And that, you know, huge benefit away. And there's, there's a real, very real competition there. But make no mistake that addressing climate change is an economic opportunity. Yeah. And that would be such a shame, too, like with the competition element in mind for the United States to sort of let that opportunity go, considering every single politician runs on a let's create jobs platform. So when it's something that seems like so tangible and so in our faces, it's kind of interesting that it hasn't gotten it even more traction than it has in like the last year or so, or that there's not even sort of a longer term history of climate change and economics and that intersection and how we can make money from it sort of at the forefront. To me, it's like, it's like logic. It's like, okay, like 
we have a problem. We don't have enough jobs in this country. Okay, well, we also have this climate issue. Hello, two plus two equals four. Mm-hmm. That's just politics for you. I mean, but can you kind of explain a little bit more just about like climate policy and what, I guess, what it can do and what how it can be used to solve climate change and just like the major climate policy areas that, you know, one would go after if you're a policy director for a presidential campaign or a PAC. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So there's maybe we start looking at it in two different kind of realms, right? There's domestically what we need to do and then internationally, right? Because this is truly a global problem. And if we do, if the United States is carbon neutral tomorrow, right? We're not emitting any more fossil fuels or anything. That's not going to be enough to to address climate change, right? We need the entire world to get on board with that. And so what we're doing internationally is incredibly important, but what we can do internationally also relies heavily on what we're doing domestically, right? We need to, it's very hard for us to go to other major emitters around the world, like China and India and say, we need you to zero out your emissions by X date if we're not doing that ourselves, right? And that was one of the big uh, issues that we had when Trump took office. You know, we kind of the global community had this big moment in 2015 where we came together and signed the Paris Climate Agreement, which was, Uh, a monumental task to get, you know, major countries all around the world to agree to basically putting this two degrees of global warming goal, and now it's 1.5 degrees, kind of as setting that as the goalpost and then working, coming up with a framework for how countries can work together to actually achieve it. And it was a moment of, you know, great optimism around the world and in the climate community that this is a, a demonstration of real cooperation on this issue. And you fast forward just a year later, we elect Donald Trump into office and he announces that the United States is going to pull out of Paris along with, you know, a handful of countries that, you know, we in a normal world would not want to align ourselves with. And so that was, you know, a really big hit to the U.S.'s credibility on climate. And at the same time, there was a concern that if the United States backed out, it would encourage a lot of other countries to say, look, if the United States isn't going to participate in it, What's the point in us doing this anyway? And so there was a real worry of other countries backsliding on the commitment that they made in Paris because the United States decided that they weren't going to do anything. So kind of during the Trump administration, and while I mentioned at the top when we were kind of a little bit more in a plain defense, was trying to show the international community that there was actually a lot of action taking place at the state and local level on climate. And so we went to those UN uh, climate conferences. That one in Poland that I mentioned was during the Trump presidency. But there was a very strong presence of subnational leaders from the United States, governors, senators, and the NGO leaders trying to show the rest of the world that the U.S. is still taking this very seriously. So kind of if you fast forward now where we have an administration that's more favorable to the goals that we set in Paris, a lot of the work that needs to be done is rebuilding that reputation we have internationally. And we need to show the rest of the world that the United States is on a path to zero out our emissions by mid-century is kind of the, the general target. So by 2045, 2050 or so, we are should be net zero. And we need to make that case that that is credible. So other countries, we can then go to other countries and have kind of encourage them to make commitments at a similar level. So I look at it in terms of the domestic and the international, and then making the case 
on a domestic level. Yeah. Well, we also want to kind of get into some more, I don't know, I guess just coin terms when it comes to climate policy and what people might hear a lot, be it through the media or through candidates or whoever. But what is a carbon tax? So can you kind of explain what that is and how it's implemented and everything? Sure. So this is one of the, it's a common tool that people point to for reducing emissions. And there's a lot of folks right now that are kind of putting out proposals for a carbon tax. So Here's another seventh grade analogy for you. Thank you. Where think about <laughs> pollution as garbage, right? When we produce garbage at our house, we put it in a bin, we put the bin out on the curb, and we pay someone to come and collect that garbage. But right now with pollution, we've just been allowing big corporations to dump this toxic pollution, this garbage into the atmosphere, but no one's charging them, right? They're doing it for free. And so a carbon tax is essentially a mechanism that would set a price for one ton of carbon dioxide emissions, for example. And if you as a polluter put one ton of carbon dioxide emissions into the air, you would have to pay that price. And that price would slowly ramp up over time. And so hopefully polluters would find it more economical to just stop polluting rather than pay this increasing price for their pollution trash that they're putting into the air is the simple way I think about it. All right. So like there, it's an incentive essentially. Can incentivize, you know, depending on that's like, that's one way to look at it. It's glass half full empty or glass half empty thing, right? Because a lot of folks don't like it because it has the word tax in there, right? So it, it can, you know, the I think the hope of it is it will incentivize people to transition to clean energy and away from emissions. But there's a very real risk that, you know, someone that's been polluting, if they need to spend $100 more a month to keep up their business as usual practices that will allow them to keep polluting, you know, keep their, their factory that's polluting open longer, you know, that's not a good thing. And so, you know, it is one of the tools in the chest, you know, in the policy chest that we have to kind of address emissions. But I would argue it's it's not a silver bullet or it's not a, a policy that would achieve all of the goals that we want. It could be one of the tools in your tool belt, but it can't be the only one, especially because it will, you know, could easily allow for for companies and um, organizations to continue polluting in places for longer than they would otherwise. Right. And it's like, if they already have enough of the funds, generally they're massive corporations, like who's to say that they wouldn't spend the money to them. It's like, okay, we won't do an ad campaign. We'll spend the money here. They'll just reallocate it. Yeah. Or or they'll do an ad campaign saying they're doing it and then not actually do anything, which (laughs) happens as well. Very fair. Well, another sort of economic tack to this whole situation is emissions trading. What is it? Is it related to carbon tax? Yeah. So it's it's kind of, a, it's trying to get at the same approach. And this is, you know, kind of a different way to set it up. And this is something that the state of California actually has been doing for a while now. So it's basically called a cap and trade market, right? So basically what happens there is, California or, you know, all of the entities that are participating in California's cap and trade market, there's a limit or a set amount of emissions that can be released every single year or the cap. 
and there are credits for all of those emissions. So say as a polluter, you will then need to have enough credits to cover the amount of emissions that you have. So it's kind of like a market-based mechanism for you to then purchase these credits. So say there's a hundred credits, my factory emitted, you know, five units of pollution. I need to make sure that I buy five of those, five of those credits. And again, as demand for those credits increases, so does the price. And all of the, the revenues from these, you know, they basically sell these credits off in an auction and the revenues from the auction go into uh, a fund for the state of California and to use on different climate, clean energy uh, projects and some projects that are a lot of that money is earmarked specifically uh, for communities that have felt the burden of, of pollution more uh, than other communities. Time to define earmark. The term earmark refers to a part of a spending bill that allocates money for specific things such as a location, project, or institution. Earmarking is often used as a tool for negotiation and deal-making. For example, a representative might vote in favor of a project in another representative's district in exchange for earmarked funding in his own district. Okay, let's get back to it. So again, there's there's benefits and drawbacks of it. It you know some folks will argue again that it allows people to continue polluting in places that have you know long been the subject of of pollution unfairly and unjustly for a really long time. And it's just kind of a it it takes time to let one of these markets mature and for the price to get to a point that will actually uh, start seeing some real emissions reductions from it. And I will say just in California's case with the cap and trade program, and, and this relates to what I was saying with the carbon tax, is that because California's had a cap and trade system for a while, we've been able to study it. And we've seen that it has not been the primary driver of emissions reduction in the state of California. So Again, it's a tool that you have in your pocket, but it's not the only thing that's really driving emissions reductions. And what really worked in California or is working in California is kind of these more sector specific standards that are putting out that, you know, we need to putting out targets that that sector as a whole needs to meet. And we found that those kind of standards are a lot more effective at real emissions reductions than these market-based mechanisms so far. Again, I think they can, they work together, but it's hard to have, you know, just one of those market-based mechanisms. I have kind of a tangent type question. I think people might not know how to distinguish like policy from like politics, but when you do create a policy, there's probably so many innovative ways that you can tackle the climate change issue. But are there times when you're like, I actually, we actually can't go for that because we just know it will never pass politically? Like, is that? It's a good question, right? Because there's the the policy formation and you can do your best to construct a policy in a vacuum, holding all of these political constraints constant and come up with what you think is the the best policy for the situation. And often, you know, from my days at policy school, you learn like, what is the least bad option of all of the ones that you're considering, right? But the politics are more implementation, right? And we can have the perfect policy down on paper, but if we can't get the politics right, if we can't get it implemented, it's not worth anything. And so I think there is a calculation to be made there of what what could happen. But I think in one of the attacks that we took when we were writing the the climate policy plan for, for Tom Steyer's campaign, 
was, look, we need to look at this in terms of the crisis itself. And we know that we're on a shorter timeline to address the climate crisis. We need to have solutions that meet the, the problem with, at the scale that the problem demands. And so that I think is the lens that we looked at it and the you know kind of hoping and at the same time working to make sure the politics of it catch up with you. And I think a lot of that is making sure public opinion is known and knowing, you know, that's why a lot of people are doing polls that are showing the vast majority of Americans, Democrats, Republicans, independents support us transitioning to clean energy. And so if you can make the case that this, you know, the, the politics are moving in that direction, you can help, you know, pave the ground for, for the policy. Yeah. I mean, maybe that wasn't a tangent question. Maybe that was actually a segue because <laughs> we also want to talk about kind of the main, I would say, policies on the federal level that we're hearing all the time. The Green New Deal is one of them. So can you kind of explain what the Green New Deal is, like in like simple terms, where it's at in, in terms of when it could or if it could you know come to fruition, but also like how it relates or compares to a Biden plan and what the Biden plan is and kind of what what's happening like right now in terms of climate policy, basically. Sure. So Green New Deal is kind of, I, I look at it more as a value and vision for future. And it, and it looks at this problem kind of the way that I described at the, the scope and breadth and scale that we actually need to address this crisis fully. There, you know, as far as I know, is not a Green New Deal bill on someone's desk in Congress, right? But it has a lot of different values and a lot of different pieces that are being introduced by different members of Congress kind of piece by piece. And there's a lot in there that we've seen the Biden administration and the Biden campaign publicly say that they're for, and then some things that they're they're not as supportive of. But I think a blanket, you know, there when you talk about support or not supporting the Green New Deal, I look at it more as the vision that the Green New Deal is putting out there, which is one where we're transitioning to a clean energy, where where people have jobs, justice, and you know we're we're kind of paving the way into a prosperous future for for everyone. And so, the different pieces of that, like I said, the Biden administration has endorsed and is supporting a lot of it, not necessarily all of it. But the one thing that is happening soon is just this week, the Biden administration is going to announce one of their big programs that's going to be focused on this kind of clean energy transition. And this is one of the issue areas that both Democrats and Republicans have wanted to do something on for a long time, and it's just haven't been able to get it done yet, and that is infrastructure and rebuilding our nation's kind of crumbling infrastructure, but through a green lens. Quick note, the infrastructure bill has dropped and we will be breaking it all down in our top story, so stick around. But back to Aaron. And this is, you know, a key part of the Green New Deal, which got its name kind of naming 
after the New Deal from, from the Great Depression era and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right, where it was, there was a Great Depression and the country had a lot of unemployed people that it needed to be put back to work. And so there were a lot of programs that came out of the New Deal to help rebuild our economy. And we find ourselves at a very similar situation now, thanks to the pandemic, is we have a lot of people that are out of work. We have infrastructure that needs improving, and we have this climate crisis that needs to be addressed. And there's a way with an infrastructure package to kind of put federal investment dollars out there to transition our economy to clean energy, to rebuild our roads and bridges, to transform the grid, to give everyone in the country access to broadband internet, and to transition to clean uh, renewable energy while um, putting millions and millions of people back to work. And so while we don't know all of the details of what Biden's plan and everything is going to look like. He's going to announce it just in a couple of days here. And uh, a lot of folks in the kind of climate environmental community are looking to uh, at this as one of the big ways where the federal government can, again, spend a lot of money rebuilding uh, our country, putting us back to work and making us really competitive again. And I think this ties back to what I was saying before on the domestic versus international side. I think having a bill like an infrastructure bill passed will go a long way into showing the rest of the world that the United States is walking the walk. We're not just putting a commitment out there and telling other countries that they should do it, but they're looking for something to show that the United States is kind of on this irreversible path towards climate, you know, emissions reductions and a massive spending program from the federal government that is focused on climate, clean energy, and justice is a really good way to do it. So I personally am very excited to see the proposal they put out there, but I'm sure a lot of elements of the Green New Deal, not everything will be in there, but I'm sure pieces of it will, will certainly be included. And I'm excited to see what, what it has. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Like sign me up for this press release. <laughs> I will be like, is there a newsletter? The edge of my seat. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> like hit me up. But we do have a listener question that we wanted to make sure we threw in here. And this involves specifically the Green New Deal and just sort of the confusion around why there's so much opposition to it. Like you've said, you know, there's so many potential economic benefits. It seems like a slam dunk, but outside of obviously probably, you know, the oil companies not being so amped about it, what's the general opposition? Like, why are people like, no? Well, depends who you're talking to, but I think the standard GOP talking points for why, you know, just not just the Green New Deal in general, but kind of democratic efforts to address climate change is that they think it's going to destroy the economy. They think, you know, transitioning off of fossil fuels is a death sentence for our economy. And I think I mentioned this earlier, but we've proven that that's just not the case. In California, you know, a lot of folks, when they're looking at this, they look at kind of emissions reductions on a graph that shows emissions reductions and economic growth, right? And the, the theory that a lot of GOP talking points want you to believe is that you can continue to have your GDP or kind of your economy grow without your emissions growing along with it. 
And what we've seen in California is the economy continuing to boom, but we are starting to level off and decrease our emissions. So we've seen this sort of decoupling of those two lines of emissions reductions and economic growth. And so we've proven here in California that it can be done and that addressing and reducing emissions is not a death sentence for the economy. So I think that's one of the concerns. The other concern that comes up a lot, which is utterly ridiculous coming from Republicans, is that it costs too much. And we talked a little bit about this before, where you know it's not really capturing the true cost of uh, the crisis, but also Republicans have been very liberal with the budget when they've been in power and passing trillion dollar budget cuts to help their richest friends and having tax cuts for your second and third yacht. But then whenever Democrats are in power, claim that we need to be very, you know, tighten our belts and be very fiscally conservative because we can't afford to have any inflationary pressures on anything like this. So they're going to play that this is too expensive. Our economy can't handle a federal influx of money quite like this, but it's completely hypocritical. And one of the first ways that I hope the Biden administration looks at funding something like this is repealing some of those kind of just terrible tax breaks that the the Trump administration passed for the richest Americans just a few years ago. Yeah. Well, to wrap up, can you kind of also give some people the tools they need when, say, voting or things to look for when it comes to electing climate leaders, what kind of policy to look for and advocate for, either when they vote or if you know you want to take action or support a campaign or a candidate or whatever it is. What are some things people can look for and prioritize when, when doing so and just trying to get people in these positions of power to actually make this change when it comes to climate policy? Sure. So let's see. I think in terms of getting people engaged in talking to elected officials, they're responsive to what their constituents say. And so a lot of, there's a reason why a lot of organizations are asking you and sending you text messages to call your elected member of Congress. It matters. And they listen. And even if you don't end up talking to someone there, calling them and saying that you are supportive of a, you know, pro-climate legislation or, you know, whatever, maybe it's this bill that the Biden administration is going to announce sometime later this month. They will keep track of the calls that they hear that are for it and the calls that they hear are against it. And so I think that's a very easy way, not during an election um, cycle, to have your voice heard. I think when you're looking at, you know, climate policy in general, I mean, for me, I think I look at, at priority and actual action. I think prioritizing it is one of the best ways that we can assume or, or count on getting something done. If it's fifth on your list of priorities, you're not going to be able to get to it. And for for climate policy, I think we really need to, we're working on a short clock right now. The the number of years that we have to actually reduce our emissions and, and zero them out globally is falling short. We had four years of kind of moving backwards with the Trump administration here. So all that said, short kind of emissions reductions in the short term are much more valuable than ones in the long term. So if we have things that we know can reduce emissions today, we should take advantage of that as fast as possible because the, the more carbon that gets put into the atmosphere, the harder it is to meet all of these kind of targets and, and warming goals that we actually set out. 
And I think on the policy side, there's been kind of a framework of thinking that the, the folks in the climate community have sort of coalesced around, which I think is super smart, where it's just looking for policy that includes standards, investment, and justice. And standards, kind of, as I explained, what we've seen here in California, making these emissions reductions by putting out these clear sectoral targets at a national level is super important. Investing in clean energy, in the infrastructure that I was talking about, putting out you know, a big federal investment, which will then in turn kind of leverage more dollars of investment in the private sector is incredibly important. And then making sure that justice is an important piece of this as well. And we touched on this a little bit, but we need to make sure that the people on the front lines who have been the ones dealing with the impacts of climate change and dealing with the impacts of pollution are taken care of and taken care of first. And so kind of combining standards, investment, and justice is, is a key to what to kind of look for. Another big UN climate conference this November, it's going to be in, assuming you know, COVID protocol and everything is safe. The plan is for it to be in Glasgow. And this is kind of a big moment. It's, it's, the, it's the UN climate event five years out of Paris because they took last year off because of the pandemic. And this is the moment where countries are supposed to increase their level of commitment. And they need to kind of show that the goal that they set in Paris, they're going to take it one step further. And we're going to see, hopefully see the Biden administration in the next month kind of announce the United States new commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement. But it will be an important tool for John Kerry and his team to work with other countries to try to encourage them to increase their commitments as well. Info here on John Kerry, who is very hot and a former U.S. Senator and Secretary of State and now a part of the President's Climate Envoy, which is actually a new cabinet-level position where Mr. Kerry will need to convince skeptical global leaders that the United States not only is prepared to resume its leadership role regarding climate after Trump, but will also stay the course, regardless of the Biden administration's future. Over and out. I'm hoping and the you know, international environmental community is hoping for Glasgow to be successful and to see a lot of countries around the world, specifically major emitters, kind of increase their level of commitment and increase their speed of emissions reductions. And it has the potential to be a really big moment, you know, kind of on, on par with Paris, but a lot of work has to take place between now and then. So what I'm kind of looking at is making sure that what we're doing domestically is strong so the kind of international community can see that and feel the pressure to increase their commitments as well. And if all that works together, hopefully we will be on a bit better of a track to address this crisis than we were just about a year ago. So, yeah. Eyes on the prize for sure. Well, I think that is the perfect way to sort of wrap up. So, of course, before we do, we do want to like give you an opportunity to plug yourself. Where can people find you? Where can people find your work? Give us the rundown. Let's see. I've I have a Twitter uh, page which is used occasionally, which is Aaron T Burgess. And um, happy if you have more questions on climate, feel free to reach out there. LinkedIn as well. I love to encourage folks that are interested in getting into the climate space and connected to organizations that are doing this work, I'd love to be as helpful as possible. So if they're, you know, I'm on LinkedIn as well. So if there's organizations that you're interested in that I have a connection to, I'm more than happy to help make those connections and bring more people into this movement because it's going to take all of us, but it's a really exciting time for it. Okay. All right. I guess it's like 
time for top stories. I think it's like, time. Is it? Well, the the stories were there weren't very many top news stories today, but there are a few things like that need explaining. There you are, know? and we have we have two kind of informative pieces per se. Informative. Okay, so infrastructure. Let's talk infrastructure. Like I feel like that word just gets thrown around all the time, but right now it is seriously top of mind because the White House has released the American Jobs Plan. And this is what Aaron was so excited about during our interview with him. And, you know, it wasn't released when we recorded this, but now we have it. And here we go. Here are the deets. Yeah. So what's included? Like, what are what are the deets? Oh, there's my chair Sam. speaking. You're welcome. <laughs> Well, squeaks aside, okay, so this has been in the news just like a little bit, maybe like a lot of it, but the American Jobs Plan has officially been released. And, you know, this has been discussed as an infrastructure bill, but what does infrastructure mean, right? Like when we think about it, we're like, okay, obviously it means roads and bridges. And you just like really think of like the physical thing, but... This bill has a lot more to it, and infrastructure is actually a lot more expansive. So there can be that physical infrastructure, like we were kind of just describing, but there can also be social infrastructure. So that's integrated here. So this bill, in terms of optics, is really looked at as a wide-sweeping bill trying to cover a lot of territory, physical territory included. So let's get into the details, right? What is actually in this bill? What are the aspects of it? So first, like we were talking about in terms of the original thought of infrastructure, it is to build quote-unquote world-class transportation infrastructure. So that means fixing highways, rebuilding bridges, upgrading ports, airports, and transit systems. It's going to focus on rebuilding clean drinking water infrastructure as well. So hello, lead pipes. We're also looking at you there. A renewed electrical grid and high-speed broadband to all Americans. So, for example, goal is to replace 100% of the nation's lead pipes and service lines. This bill will also aim to build, preserve, and retrofit more than 2 million homes and commercial buildings to modernize our nation's schools, community colleges, and early learning facilities. Hey, preschool, looking at you here. And upgrade veterans, hospitals, and federal buildings. So there are a lot of job opportunities there, of course. That doesn't just happen by snapping one's fingers. This bill also solidified the infrastructure of our care economy. So this is where that social element comes in. This is where the Republicans are not getting too happy. They're feeling like this is overreach. But understanding of what that means, the care economy is essentially home, essential home care workers. And so... That, of course, is more of a social perspective on infrastructure. Infrastructure being sort of the core basis in which everything else can be built upon. So think of it as a foundation. We use infrastructure in like our daily language, I feel like. Like infrastructure is like the bones of something, like you said, like the foundation. And when you think about infrastructure politically, for some reason, it's just been, you know, narrowly focused on physical infrastructure. But infrastructure is so overarching. And again, is that is the backbone. It's the backbone of our country. And so there's we have to tackle that in an overarching and comprehensive way. And I feel like that's what this bill is attempting to do. And it's just really going against the status quo of the way we've looked at infrastructure politically. Mm-hmm. 
Totally, totally. And like Republicans have typically been behind having infrastructure spending. And then it's essentially flipping the definition of the word on them, right? Like it's a, it's an optics game. It's a PR game on that. You're like, oh, you wanted infrastructure? Well, we'll give you infrastructure. And this is how we're defining infrastructure. But I think we have to keep going through what else is in this. So the whole goal is to create jobs, right? So part of that is, of course, manufacturing. So the goal with this in particular is to revitalize manufacturing, secure some of those U.S. supply chains, and invest in research and development, as well as training Americans for jobs of the future. So, of course, that is thought of in the bucket of technology. Where are we going? We're going towards a very tech-centric economy and global world. So investment in jobs that do that, right? It would be Excellent if in high school we are actually able to be trained in some jobs that are uh, relevant. Yeah, imagine, Sam, if like you got the proper education so that you could set up your microphone on your own, like, <laughs> and like do any kind of like technical troubleshooting on your own. <laughs> can you imagine? I would be at such a higher level. My salary, can you imagine? I'd basically be Elon Musk. Literally. It's fine. They'd have you doing everything. It would just open up so many more doors for me. So. Point is, Sam needed the American jobs plan back in what, 2005, 2000? I don't even think that. <laughs> <laughs> and imagine where she'd be today. What else? Do we have any other, do you have any other bullet points in here? We do have one more. And like, this is particularly relevant. Pertinent? Pertinent. Mm, pertinent. I don't use that mm. word enough. But this one is, as Maddie said, pertinent to our episode. So... This particular bill also looks at climate change and climate science. So some of that infrastructure, some of that research and development is actually going to be, if this passes, focused on climate change. So of course, our guy Aaron was particularly excited about this element. Yeah. And we've reached out for comment as true podcasting reporters. Yes, we have yet to get a comment back from our guest from today on, you know, his grade, his thoughts on this sweeping legislation. And we'll definitely keep you updated on what he says, because I sure as hell want to know, you know, his thoughts, his feelings and his opinions. But basically kind of like that's kind of the meat and potatoes of this legislation. But like, what is the like political pathway for this legislation? So there's a lot here, obviously. And so, like we said, like this is a massive society-wide sweeping bill that is really going to reach like every corner of our economy is being called quote-unquote infrastructure. And that's why it's immediately running into a lot of resistance from Republicans in Congress, because like we said, it's just not that status quo understanding of an infrastructure bill because it's so massive and so you know republicans are calling it a liberal wish list that they're just like throwing in all of these progressive policies and trying to basically hide them that's what they call a trojan horse if you remember you know the story of the spartans how they all hid in the trojan horse that's basically what they like to call a lot of different democratic bills that are you know kind of packed with a bunch of stuff and they're kind of zeroing in on these aspects of like racial justice and climate change and just questioning what that has to do with infrastructure as we understand it typically. And so they're kind of like pulling out their pie charts saying how a small fraction is actually like 
going towards traditional infrastructure. And so this is a debate that Joe Biden has ahead of him. And similar to kind of that COVID relief bill, he's going to like have them to the White House, try and compromise, debate it, and see if they can reach an agreement. But basically, if they don't come to an agreement, Democrats have already kind of have a backup plan and plan to pass it on a party line vote through the House and the Senate through the special process we now know due to the COVID bill called budget reconciliation, which only requires 50 votes as opposed to the 60 votes you need to get past the Senate filibuster, which is, again, that like really longstanding debate that's where we have actually had senators like read green eggs and ham just to waste time. So reminder on the filibuster, we love to talk about the filibuster. And so they can keep every single Democrat on board and clear a bunch of like procedural hurdles that, you know, this process of getting it through the Senate will throw at them. And once again, the Democrats can ram a very, very large bill through Congress without a single Republican vote, just like they did with the COVID relief bill just, what was that, last month? So basically... Another big, you know, obviously talking point, everyone wants to know how will we pay for this. So the first thing they're going to do is increase the corporate income tax rate. And so President Trump, you might remember, did a very large corporate income tax cut. He cut it from 35% down to 21%. And so Biden would take it back up, but only to 28%. So that would just be the start. And then he would force multinational companies to pay more on tax to the United States on an income they earn around the world. And and this is kind of an attempt to end this practice that a lot of companies have of moving profits around the globe in order to like search for lower tax rates. So again, it would be the most sweeping and expensive set of government initiatives passed since the 60s. And in dollar terms, could end up being the largest expansion of federal spending ever. And in that sense, it would really be, obviously, depending who who you're asking, would be a really big win for President Biden and actually would put him, like, in the league with, like, really ambitious past Democratic presidents like Lyndon Johnson and Franklin Roosevelt. And what we do know about Joe Biden is that he really does genuinely want to work on a bipartisan basis and have a bipartisan legacy. But honestly, looking at the times of Lyndon Johnson and Franklin Roosevelt, politics are just so vastly different now just because of how polarized and divisive it is. So it's going to be hard for him to get this passed on a bipartisan basis. Fingers crossed for a plot twist, but we will see what happens. We will keep everyone updated again and also keep you updated on what Aaron thinks because like we all want to know. So... (laughs) Literally, like, waiting by my phone. So, this little news story has just, like, a little bit, aka a lot of bit, to do with our episode with Clint Borgen. That episode, we talked with Clint about foreign aid and the Borgen Project's involvement in reducing global poverty through foreign aid. So, here's the story. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called for the speeding up of the distribution of coronavirus vaccines in poorer nations. She argued the United States and global economies are threatened by the impact of COVID-19 on the developing world. While the United States and other rich countries are hoping for a return to normalcy as soon as this fall, or like even June in California apparently, many parts of the developing world are not on pace to have widespread vaccination of their populations until 2023 or 2024. That's crazy. It makes me so sad. Wrinkles I'm gonna have on my face by then? I mean, look like the Crypt Keeper, as per usual. So, anyways. 
So those countries have largely suffered more devastating economic impacts from COVID, in part because they do not have the fiscal capacity to authorize the levels of emergency spending approved in the United States. Monday, Yellen called on richer countries, <clears throat> United States, to step up both economic and public health assistance for and to poorer nations reeling from COVID. She noted as many as 150 million people across the world risk falling into extreme poverty as a result of the crisis. She commented specifically, this would be a profound economic tragedy for those countries, one we should care about, but that's obvious. What's less obvious, but equally true, is that this divergence would also be a problem for America, Yellen said. Our first task must clearly be stopping the virus by ensuring that vaccinations, testing, and therapeutics are available as widely as possible. So first of all, her comment gives me chills. I freaking love it. And it's just like exactly what Clint was saying. Like, obviously, we should care about other countries and other people who are struggling across the world. But there's also this aspect of how big of a problem it is when other countries are experiencing extreme poverty and the problem that causes for America. Totally. So here we are. Full circle moment. I I mean, another round of applause, like, for us to just, like, have these very pertinent guests and pertinent topics on our show. Just... Amen. Amen. Okay. That is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for another climate-related episode. And is there anything else? I feel like people should, like, follow us. Maybe, like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Ooh. Maybe tell their friends. That's a great idea. I um, also highly recommend throwing a link in a group me or LinkedIn. Mm, that's a great idea. But again, DM us with your questions about climate. We want to hear. We want to ask our guests for this month. But that is it for this week. Thank you again for listening. And we will be talking to you next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.